0: cards from a dying world the podcast for more than a decade i've reviewed over 1000 books that are mostly science fiction horror and bizarro this feed will feature bonus audio i have produced over the years as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what i've read each month plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction thanks for listening all right joining me on the postcards from a dying world podcast is a very special guest and somebody i have known for decades but rob robert pennington who uh, is better known in the uh tribe that i grew up in in the hardcore music scene as probably is rob point or rob by the grace of god he is also the vocalist recently of black cross um but we're gonna talk later in the interview about some of the things he does professionally, because it crosses the streams with what I do professionally uh, for my day job, because he is the, um, he's a PhD and BCBA at in the Lake and Edward Snyder Distinguished Professor in Special Education at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Ooh. Yeah, got it. And, uh, but Rob, we're going to start talking about Um, music. And because this is how we met each other. I grew up two hours north of you in Bloomington, Indiana. You grew up in Louisville. We shouldn't know each other except for the fact that we grew up in a very special and small tribe, which is the pre-internet hardcore music scene. Because of that, I'm going to, I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm going to let you do, I'm going to let you take the reins here in a minute. But because of the way the hardcore scene worked before the internet, um, it was a very close, tight knit scene. The bands would travel and the kids, the hardcore kids would travel all over the Midwest to see shows. So I was constantly going to shows in Chicago, Louisville, Dayton, Ohio, Columbus. I had friends in all these places Lafayette, Indiana, Indianapolis. And one of the bands that was consistently a part, the soundtrack of my high school years, uh, because you guys were playing almost all those shows all over the time, was Endpoint. Um, And I've probably seen Endpoint live more than a hundred times in my life. And that was your band. You were the vocalist of Endpoint. Can you tell me how you got into hardcore and what the punk rock scene was like in Louisville? Which I know is a big question. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll I'll try to do it kind of quickly, I guess.
1: I don't know i think like like most of us we found our way into a community because uh you know i was a kid uh, you know and a suburban kid i guess my my dad uh was dissatisfied with teaching and had just left uh teaching to start a bait business they really loved fishing and then my mom worked at sears uh as a manager and worked really hard all the time and um you know, I don't know. I just found myself not kind of fitting in with school. I was a little bit nerdy. So I was bully bait early on. Um, and middle school was torturous for me, I remember. And then I kind of found this community. And, you know, and I think it was, I was prepped for it because there's an older guy, about two years older than I was, Myron Hardesty, was our paper boy. And he had a mohawk and ride his bike around every now and then. He would listen to this, you know, on a cassette tape. And I wasn't ready for it, but i whoa, what is this, right? And um, yeah, so I, I just... I found the few kids that were around that were into that, somehow I gravitated towards uh, hanging out with them and you know, they kind of gave me strength. And, you know, a lot of the music was, were narratives about being frustrated being frustrated, and fighting back against the norm. It kind of celebrated individuality, you know, and uh, and I needed that at that time. And then, you know, once you get in the door, you know, and if you like the music and there's Wonderful people there. There's cool kids of all different ages, and uh, you just kind of get wrapped in. And then, and then the best part about it is, you know, here I am, this kid from Kentucky, and I get to play in a band. I get to drive to other states, and then it took me to other countries. And uh, you know, I would have never had that opportunity uh, without being in music. You know, I wasn't a kid where my parents were going to send me to some Ivy League college, you know, or some college really far away. Like those experiences were kind of out of reach for me. So music really kind of opened the door for a, um, a whole bunch of other possibilities and, and activities. So that's how I got into it. The scene was great. As you as you know, you come to Louisville. Endpoint spawned a long period of time. I think we were together about seven years. And so from the beginning of that show, of that time, when, you know, there would be 100 people to, Later, you know, the shows were consistently 500 to 1000 people. And so it was really strange to be a a young nerd kid in the center of that type of scene, you know, where there's like five, 800 people come to sing along to your songs. And I don't know, just, I look back now, 30 years later, I'm like, wow, that was so exciting. I try try to think about how it changed me. I, I think it gave me more confidence. You know, I think it, uh, helped me interacting with people, Help me interact with people. There were some hardships associated with it early on, but you know it was just a wonderful time. And Louisville's still a wonderful place. You know, I'm not one of those guys that goes back and says, oh, it was the good old days. Like there's still great stuff always happening there and great iterations of bands. And it's just a cool town. We left it about three years ago and I miss it a lot.
0: Well I want to drill down a little bit on that as far as because this is my chance to ask you about this band that was a huge influence on me. Uh Louisville, before we get into Louisville specifically, I know the first punk rock song or first punk rock band I ever heard was the Dead Kennedys and it was like a lightning bolt. And I and I always, I can remember very distinctly hearing Nazi punks fuck, fuck off for the first time because I was like cracking up that they were cursing. Do you remember the first lightning bolt of punk rock? Was there a song or a, a band that just hit you the hardest the first or was or is it an overall thing?
1: You know, I don't remember the exact, you know, I remember my first LP that I bought was Suicidal Tendencies, uh, but I, but I had a cassette tape and I love uh, a Husker Du cassette tape. And I, I loved flip, flip your wig, you know, walking around with your head in the clouds, makes no sense at all. And I, and I, that really spoke to me because I was just so, um, I don't know, I was really confused as a, as a young person. I was just trying to figure out where I fit and there were a lot of things going on in the home that were generally positive, but also I think stressful for me. And so, so I remember that a lot. And then I remember uh black flag depression, like hearing that on a cassette tape, a, a guy gave me, and on one side was that. And then on the other side was circle jerks group sex. And it was like, that was it. I was just like, Oh my God, of course, like the black flag side spoke to me but then i couldn't stop singing along to circle jerk because you're you're like got a date can't be late there's your up, i'll masturbate tell me what's your problem dun, dun, dun. and it was like uh by the way they just re- reissued that record and I was my other one was so shredded i ordered i was so pumped yeah so those, those two songs flipping back and forth were like the hooks for me and then it was everything else descendants like i mean all the all the so- all the bands that came along and once you open that door you know, it becomes a a, a swap meet of like, have you heard this? You're, the people you meet, they expose you to more bands. But those are probably the the ones that I remember the most: the early Husker Du, Damaged, Group Sex, and of course, I once I bought that first uh, "Suicidal Tendencies" record, I just wore it out. I remember my dad coming to the bedroom and going, "Do you want your mom dead?"
0: You know, and I was
1: like, "No, dad, it's just a song." It's like, "What's
0: wrong with you?" So. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now. Louisville specifically has a very interesting scene, and I consider Endpoint being a part of that as, as as, like if you look at the history of the bands that came from there from the very early days with like Squirrel Bait, the, the Squirrel Bait records are fantastic. I still listen to them all the time. Yeah. In, and you look at uh, like King Horse as a band that came out of Louisville that was incredible, which by the way, played the first show at Rhinos in Bloomington, the very first show at Rhinos was King Horse. So, um, King Horse is also important to Bloomington as well. Yeah, I know that the horse is very important to me too. I, the thing with Louisville is is that all the bands had a really interesting and you know sound there, and eventually there was somewhat of a Louisville sound with you guys and falling forward as far as hardcore goes, but. It's just such an interesting scene. What was it like growing up and specifically like hearing the local bands in Louisville when you were growing up?
1: You know, like many of those early scenes, I think it was what was exciting for many of us is that it was kind of dangerous, right? Is that the there, there was a posse hardcore around, right? There were bands that were scary, you know, older bands that we would see the uninvited play and uh and kind of well there was an early band that i really loved solution unknown and they um and members of that went on to slint and and other bands uh uh, uh there, there was maurice um, the brain dead anyway i'm they need to list off a bunch of bands but the, but they all there were this very there was a very kind of and i don't know i i didn't um grow up in other and other scenes so but there was it was a very dark kind of scene i think like it was really like hardcore which i think again i think spoke to that late late 80s mid 80s kind of kind of sound um and it was just amazing again as i told you i was a middle class kind of lower middle class kid from the suburbs and i'd sneak out go to this show where there's like older dudes and leather jackets and there's a sense of adventure and the sense of uh, um uh, rebellious again I was a kid that was bullying middle school and I get to hang out with these like 16 and 17 year olds that are older that have leather jackets that are kind of scary you know you kind of find this level of confidence with them so so the scene itself was really enticing again lots of small venues tool Charlie's pizzeria uh, there were some great uh, uh, VFW post shows but going you're right in terms of at that time and I'm not a giant music aficionado, like I have friends that can list off every band and every iteration, but to me it sounded very different. You know, it was hardcore, but it, like it didn't sound like other hardcore bands, you know, but if, if you listen to like Malignant Growth, like, you know, they were definitely influenced by, you hear like Minor Threat and stuff like that in there, but it didn't sound like it, just the way they their guitar sound, the way the singer sa- sang, uh, good old Brett Ralph sang. So there was a uniqueness, and I wonder if it's because people took snippets of things they liked from other scenes, because, you know, Louisville is a weird place. It's like you've got the coast over here, definitely not the West Coast. Chicago is kind of close, and later there was a lot of Chicago influence and, and a lot of the music that came out of Louisville, um, but I, I think that it was, it was a, maybe it's du- less of a direct influence of other coasts made some of the sounds and some of those bands be, to be pretty unique for their time. I might ramble a little bit, so. No,
0: no, no, I wanna hear it. Um, but yeah, I think Louisville being <laughs> not quite the North, not quite the South, being right in the middle. I know it felt like the South to you guys, <laughs> being, uh, being punk rock uh, there. One of the things like in my novel, Punk Rock Ghost Story, one of the major themes I wanted to explore was that I think that people who grew up in punk rock in the post-internet age have no idea how, hated and despised and beat up and tortured we were before the internet came along and nirvana made being different okay and mainstream no
1: we were angry i mean i know and yeah. it's, it's
0: not right it's not um it's a sense of arrogance
1: and it, it's just stupid but i remember just kind of being annoyed by nirvana because i just suddenly felt i was like wait a minute this is all cool now <laughs> and we had to suffer through being punched. you know i was I, I tried to be on the wrestling team for a year or two because I, I don't know i've, I've always like martial arts things like that and the guys would just punch me in the back of the head my teammates they just hated me i had skater bangs like you know for many other reasons but being 13 and 14 years old you were just always called names every time like you're like yes bag i mean all those terrible words were thrown at you all the time like and you're just like so suddenly whenever when those same people that tormented you suddenly started kind of dressing like us and listen to loud music it was like wait a minute again it makes no sense as a grown-up it's like everybody should be able to do what they have access to things that they enjoy but again we were angry because you're absolutely right it was our our nights look like this we get in the car we drive around we try to find our people you just try to find your tribe right and you're like oh they might be at this at the vogue theater they might be in this park mostly a, a parking lot scene where, where where there wasn't a show we would find a parking lot cops would run off we'd find another place and it was you know it was problem solving all right where were they last time you know have you have yeah. you, called, you don't have a cell phone so you get on a cell. you try to catch somebody before they leave their house you call from the pay phone where are they uh it was a totally different experience, I think, in terms of the response effort required to uh, to engage in that scene.
0: Yeah, well, in Bloomington, we had People's Park, which was the park that all the hippies, punks, freaks, um, and I actually just wrote a novel about People's Park, in part because the whole time we were hanging out in Bloomington and People's Park, we had no idea that the reason why the park existed was in the late 60s, there was a black owned business there that had been bombed by the Klan and the hippies of the day took over that place and said, we want to turn something positive out of this spot and made a park there. And we spent our whole youth hanging out in that park and had no idea the history of it, which is crazy. But yeah, uh, Ryan Downey and I have talked about um, the places where you gathered before the internet as punk rockers. Because in Indianapolis, they had Broad Ripple, right? And we had People's Park. And in Chicago, they had pumpkin donuts. And so I became really interested in like where in all these cities, people like hung out. So, so you guys had to move around a bit where you chased out of spots? Is that, is that was what was going on in Louisville?
1: Mostly. I mean, most of it, were, most of it we spent, we were on Bardstown Road,
0: right? Yeah. So Bardstown Road is kind of like
1: the, the hit. Now there's multiple scenes in Louisville, little areas, but we would just move from parking lots to parking lots. Uh, down Sound Road. So there's the a lane parking lot, the, the Deerwood Deer Park parking lot. When we got kicked out of there, this this cool minister across the street's like, oh, you can hang out in our parking lot. So we hung out there. Like it was, uh, yeah. So we were definitely a, a a parking lot scene. You know, one other thing is really that, go back to shows that I, that I think it was really unique and wonderful about that time is the diversity of, of the people that went to shows, right? So first of all, the bands were different, right? Of course, it wasn't like an eight, Eight set hardcore band, you know, of like everything sounds exactly the same. Like, uh, and I think that was really wonderful. It's also the scene was less segregated. Like, you know, it was like the there and the town. There were like the the five goth kids, the few hardcore kids, uh, kids that were persecuted because they were gay or, or figured out who they were. They everybody just kind of came together in those early years, yeah. and that was really beautiful. And it was really a disappointing, I think, or unfortunate that. The popularity of the music grew so much that that people were pushed out of that. And that there was so much segregation, I think, in the and scenes and how where, and how people felt that they belonged when they went to shows.
0: Yeah, that there became scenes within scenes. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, it was not like that in the early days, and and um, but with the early days of Endpoint, which I believe you guys were called Death Watch first, right? Yeah. Was that the first yeah. name, like all right, I got my trivia correct.
1: But- Oh, the death because he liked horror that's like the death watch beetle that like knocks its head and
0: yeah yeah so of course your partnership and longtime working relationship with duncan and for people who don't know uh your guitar player for many many years uh duncan barlow who might be familiar to many of the listeners of this podcast as as the writer as an author because uh i interviewed duncan a couple of years, when i before i officially did a podcast when i was just uh testing my waters at how to interview people and all that for his novel, uh, the city awake, which is genius and brilliant, brilliant piece of work. And uh, in the hardcore scene, there was a few partnerships that were kind of known like Ray and Purcell and like a singer and guitarist that worked together. And you and Duncan um, also did by the grace of God together. Now you've both done bands on your own without each other, but you guys are like peanut butter and jelly as far as hardcore scene. Like we, we, kind of see you guys together and your friendship and your partnership and your creative partnership working together is one that is enough that when you guys post pictures that you're just out, you're visiting each other and out for a hike, it just gives me joy to know that you guys are hanging out because kind of part of endpoint is that relationship that you and Duncan had at the core of it. One of the reasons why, by the grace of God, immediately, I was like, all right, I'm getting that record. I'm going to go see that band is because you guys were working together again and i loved that how yeah. did you meet duncan and what was the the creative spark that started death watch slash endpoint you know for mine we all have different <laughs> memories on this especially we get older but
1: um duncan was a it was already kind of established in the scene right he was a uh, he had an older sister he was playing uh, he played wolfsbane and then crisis uh, and some other, so he was already in bands playing shows, and so I kind of knew who he was, and actually, I, I saw Crisis play uh, at the Brown School, and I can't believe, maybe they were playing with anti-youth, and a, another band, but anyway, um, I remember he kicked me as a singer, and I was skanking around, I was like, that guy's a jerk, and, I, uh, so you know, he had, like, his motorcycle boots, he was probably, like, 14, you know, because I was, I'm a year older, His little devil lock, and this, uh, and, and somehow through mutual friends and just being a part of, I don't know, we just kind of gravitated together and I, we got close. We, and they were looking for, so the band brought us together really. So we knew each other. I remember we went to like a Beastie Boys, uh, uh, Murphy's Law, uh, uh, Fishbone show together. I mean, we were kind of hanging out, but weren't super close yet. And then my other bass player, Jason Graff, and my previous band, he and Duncan were doing this band and they reached out to me to sing for it. And then that's kind of where we came together. And, you know, I just, Duncan, our relationship, we, we brought different things to the table. And, uh, I can definitely say that I'm just a better human for knowing them, you know? And again, we talk probably every other day, old men chatting about stuff. Um, uh, but you know, I love him dearly. It's probably my, my, he is my closest friend. And, uh, um, I'm glad that we had about 20 years. Well, you know, we still two two years ago, two or three years ago, we did a "By the Grace of God" tour, and we put out a, we put out a, a new record. So it's I'm glad that we've had all these decades of adventures together. He's been a he's been a great partner in that. He's just a talented guy,
0: you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now when it, back in the day, um, I my first ever hardcore show that I put on, you guys played at that show at Rhinos in Bloomington with the show. That was a great show. It was Bloodline. Endpoint, lifetime, and resurrection. That when I flipped out and got naked, or was that the second one? No, this was the one where I got chewed out because of I don't know if it was people that came from Louisville, or I, it was people were accused from Louisville of stealing the um, um, the parking meters from the parking lot. The... I wouldn't
1: be surprised.
0: <laughs> right, but uh, that was the first hardcore show I ever put on because when I booked it, I called Duncan and I, we discovered that we both liked horror movies and and horror fiction. And so I struck up a friendship with Duncan and, you know, regularly talked to Duncan on the phone, traded letters because this was pre-internet and we would send each other flyers and stuff like that. So I'd say back in the day, I was, I was closer and I've always kind of known Duncan a little bit better. But one of the things about those times that's different from how things operate today is that you guys regularly played shows Louisville, Indianapolis, Lafayette, Bloomington, Chicago, Dayton, the first time I ever saw Endpoint was at the new space in Dayton, Columbus and I went to all those shows. So uh, it's not we lived in different cities but I felt like we I saw you guys all the time. It kind of felt it was like a tribal feeling like we were friends with all these guys like I'll just pull random person, from, like Scotty Neemit from uh, Columbus, for example, just felt like one of one of my friends because even though we didn't live in the same city, we saw each other on a regular basis. And that feeling and that emotional connection, um, not just with seeing friends from like, hey, we're all at the same shows, you'd pull up into, let's say you go to a show in Chicago and you pull in the parking lot and you see Oh, there's so-and-so from Louisville, and there's so-and-so from Dayton. That's Frank McGuire there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. It was such a special time, but what I think really kind of pulled it all together, and this is where I'm going to put some of this on you and Duncan and Chad and everybody who was in Endpoint at the time was, the emotional connection that Endpoint had with the audience in the, in the Midwest was something that was very special, and... Endpoint shows were like emotionally draining because they were outpourings of, of emotion from beginning to end. What, what can you tell me about how it felt for you to be at the center of this storm and being, because I can't listen to an Endpoint song now without still feeling a little bit of that emotional connection.
1: So, you know, I wasn't aware at the time that... I mean, I, I, that's not true. I mean, I was aware of the time of the, the, the connection because I was I was a part of it. Like I felt just as connected to the shows, the people, and more importantly, the people at the shows, I think. Sorry, I probably should have. That's a, that's a great question. Um, so for me, so one, I agree with you. It's hard to say that because I'm biased because I was in the band, but I do think that Going to millions of other shows, you know, I, I there was something special about those shows. I don't think that, you know, it was it was planned. I think it was timing. I think there was a lot of honesty in us. I think we were okay sharing all of the everything, right? And like, I think I was a repressed kid. I think there was a lot of things I was trying to work out. So I was okay doing that in front of people. And then it, and then you know, I, I also suffered from some. De- depression and 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 all that I was able to turn inward on stage and it was very cathartic for me I've always been that way like you ask me my friends I I did martial arts for 20 years I didn't do we didn't wear gloves we just I just got beat up a lot like there's like always like working through stuff and I I still am I think try to try to be full tilt in many of the things that I do so one I don't think that we plan to do it I recognize that it happened and and acknowledge that it was extremely special and i still i'll watch one of those old videos and you know and i you know i sometimes if it's the right moment the little hair stands up my arm so i remember that show and that moment and those people and like and it, you know i would weep it was weird but i but i but i felt it i felt connected to it so what it was like to be a part of it so one it was um exciting at some points, you know because everybody wants to feel special and when people come to your shows you're like oh that's awesome um but it was also really troubling right because you felt that you could never we became so connected with the people we played for because suddenly they were our friends and family that you felt you couldn't let them down or sometimes we were letting them down if something if we didn't do something right you know i i don't think i was equipped sometimes you know i was this uh, um i tried to be a good listener so like you know we'd have a show and people are lined up to hug you after the show and then you're sitting down the corner you're talking to them about things that you're not equipped to talk to them about but you try to listen you know and and some, some were intense you know people talked about things would come up right so people would talk about abuse women would talk to me about sexual abuse um everything from you know I, I, I went through a cache of letters one time and it was everything it was everything from I had letters about date rape. I had letters about kids being bullied in school because they were vegetarian. It was just the weirdest, you know. And to look back on that now, to think that I was like, you know, seventeen through twenty-two, trying to respond to that or be a, an effective communicator, it was it was it was it was stressful. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, and I can tell you too that I I have a very specific example of the first Indianapolis. Fest, the one at the um, the Knights of Columbus, right? Yeah. You guys played at the end of the Fest. And I remember, because I, I was really good friends with the Abnegation guys at that point. And Abnegation had this like crazy set that turned into people yelling and screaming at each other. And I remember saying before you guys came on, I was like, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to take Endpoint right now. Like, I remember saying to a friend, I'm like, I, I'm, just, I'm not even going to watch Endpoint. And I think you guys opened with the force fed or whatever you guys were playing. And the first song I was outside and I was just kind of like, whatever. And then you guys started playing cast. And then I just, my body took over. And then the next thing I know, I'm like falling on the stage, Duncan steps on me. I'm thrown back into the crowd. And I was just like, I remember having this thought of like that first song. I was like, I'm not even going to watch Endpoint right now. And then realizing that, I had no control over myself at that point. The Endpoint was such a part of me that, like, even when I tried to resist it, I couldn't. So it's it's a funny thing about that band. But one thing that I think is cool about Endpoint is we kind of got to watch you guys, and this is true of any hardcore band. If you take Earth Crisis or any, any band that was together for a long time, you can watch the band grow up in front of your eyes and, like, look at the music and how it changes from, you can... I mean, and some of the early Endpoint stuff to me, and don't take this the wrong way, because I love it, but some of the songs are so goofy and hilarious that oh. in a great way, like, uh, Thought You Were, I cannot not listen to that song and crack up with the Use Unity, like, it just, I love it, but it's still in my shuffle. I listen to that all the time. There's other songs I think are stronger from early on, like way back. I think is still a great song, for example. That was that
1: was our that was our drummer Rusty wrote that song.
0: So you got that, but and I'll never not laugh at. I'm so fucking pissed in, in the model, right? So um, we all we played uh, one of
1: the, a show in Chicago maybe ten years ago, eight years ago, and it was all of us. It, it was it was it was basically by the grace of God playing endpoint songs this was me and Duncan and Tommy and uh, uh Robbie Scott and we all went and got SFP tattoos afterwards so fucking pissed tattoos a little arrow through them that's pretty <laughs> that's great no I-, I say so I will say I felt you know I feel that I feel well, that is one thing that was cool about that band is because we we're all just goofy kids together even a part of the scene the scene watched us grow up and I you know and I, I we I felt that I felt like there wasn't as many phases. I felt like people were a lot of people were with us through the whole generation. They and they grew with us. So as we got better and more sophisticated in what we're writing, they were all growing up and having their lives too. And it was just it was really cool for that, um, that not symmetry, but just that kind of alignment with with people's lives. And so I think that was that was another thing that contributed to the the connect at that point.
0: Well, and one thing that I think is neat. When I look at the music that you produced is like I can look at Aftertaste and say musically you're doing far more mature and interesting things than for example Catharsis but Catharsis to me is peak endpoint because it's where you just totally nailed what endpoint was. And I know I've said this to Duncan before that I even though I think Aftertaste probably has better music on it, I think yeah. Catharsis is if if somebody asked me what is endpoint you know, wants me to distill endpoint for them. I'm gonna play them Catharsis, and that's the record that I think you guys nailed. What you were as a band, and also those shows around that time is, I think the, 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 perfect where it was starting to get big, but it wasn't too big, and it was still kind of our secret, kind of you know. So I don't know I, how you feel about that, but.
1: Uh, The breaking point was this. We played um, someplace in Chicago. It was really small, wasn't well attended. It was an art studio. There was Pyramid in the name of it, maybe. And that was it. We were playing catharsis songs. We had all just been dumped, maybe. And we were all just like in the the prime of like the amalgam of shit that goes on growing up. And and we were just depressed. We lost it. Like like that show. All the other shows before that were just kind of like, you know, if you look back at the time of the hate era, we were trying to emulate our hero, we trying to figure things out. But that show, like Chad lost his mind, like just we broke everything and went, and from then on it was like we, could, we didn't go back. We're like, this feels good. And from then on, it was just all honesty. We just kind of did ourselves. But it was that night in Chicago at some weird place called the Pyramid Something. It was a art studio. And then, yeah, so I agree with you. The, that Those songs, like Iceberg and some of those songs to me are like still some of my favorites to play. I mean, they're not lyrically sophisticated either, but they, are, they were honest and they really were in accordance with what was happening at the time for me.
0: Yeah, it's totally an amazing record and uh, still totally holds up in my opinion so then you did uh by the grace of god that was more kind of traditional hardcore and you could tell that this was done by uh kind of grown-ups who knew what they were <laughs> wanting to do it's really great stuff i love both the original uh by the grace of god records i mean i like the stuff you put out recently too but it, it's a very assured thing. Like, I, it's it's a very confident thing. It's by people who know what they're doing and setting out to do it. And so I do really appreciate that aspect of by the grace of God. But what I liked um, looking about, well, I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So it seemed like by the grace of God was you guys trying to say like, hey, we still love this. We still love hardcore. We want to do a hardcore band. And we want to do a hardcore band, but do it, you know knowing what we're doing knowing what we're doing this time a little bit better I- am i wrong was, was that the motivation that was exactly the, the, the discussion that we had we were
1: all but we, we saw other bands out there playing there were a lot of band there, there was a shift towards this non-personal kind of i don't know boys club weird hardcore kind of thing it seemed like maybe i don't i don't Anyway, we said, yeah, let's do a, We can do this. Let's just do a straight up hardcore band. And we wanted you, and, and even though there are some personal songs on with By the Grace of God, we saw it as a vehicle for uh, some, some messaging, right? So one of them was directly targeted at what we thought was happening with that hardcore scene that we loved, but also it gave us room to talk about other specific issues that were of interest to us at that time. So yeah, I think it was much more on the nose when it came to, talking about corporations, talking about you started seeing special education for me uh making its way into the into those lyrics and so yeah it was a, it was a very different much more comfortable we, we were done blowing ourselves up to figure out who we were we kind of you know we were in our mid-20s now we were starting to figure stuff out so
0: right and you guys were already uh you and Duncan were already in school and working towards like professional careers and 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 so i think that's reflected in that too it's funny because i was talking to an old hardcore friend from here in san diego a couple days ago and he said to me and this this is my uh, kind of rough transition to the second part of what we're going to be talking about but he said uh, of course it's two guys in endpoint that ended up professors and uh <laughs> i was like what's that supposed to be and he was like well you know you they were they, were they were figuring themselves out right <laughs> And i said yeah, and he's like, well, they were always real smart guys. And I was like, well, yeah, it's like they're smart dudes and lots of hardcore bands, though. And we just had this funny conversation. And then I said, well, I think specifically to with what you do, Rob, because I know, because I'm in the same field with special education, hardcore teaches us to think differently and think outside the box. And I hate that phrase but because it's so corny, but it's true. And a lot of times with special education, we're having to think on our feet, especially um, my absolute favorite aspect of working in special education. And I know this sounds weird to other people, but I actually, my favorite days in this field are when I have a kid with autism who's tantruming, who's losing their mind. I have to figure out the puzzle of how I'm going to calm them down and how I'm going to get them back to baseline, right? Figuring out that puzzle of, okay, what's my antecedent? What started this? How am I gonna calm them down? Is something that I think comes a lot or comes naturally to me partially because I grew up thinking about the world differently. What says you, Rob? And how did you get involved with special education? Where did that start for you? Two different questions. So the first one, else, um, I started
1: as a peer tutor in fifth grade and so I was, um, I was fortunate, I got an advanced program, maybe in fourth grade, and like did some special things we could do. And one of them was we finished some work, we'd go next door and work in a special education classroom and had students with more severe disabilities. And um, uh, So that is, that's where I figured it out. My dad was a teacher. Uh, he told me not to teach towards the end because he had left, and I was like, "Screw you, Dad! I'm going to teach anyway." You know, like a rebellious punk kid. I guess I don't know. But I just knew it was an option. I was in Future Teachers of America in high school. I was doing during the endpoint days. I was I was doing respite and I was I did home therapy a little bit. Like I was already knew what I wanted to do, and I started teaching by 22. So I was that was it. I I, I kind of I was fortunate. I knew something that I wanted to do. Its alignment with punk values, I think, is you can, you can always make connections, but I do think, one, I think that there is a social justice aspect, right, of good punk, and I think that you want to do something where you feel like you're making a difference, right, so I think that's important. I think that, you know, we, I spent the first, you know, eight decade of punk rock, trying to problem solve and figure things out, you know, and that's like you said, in special education, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build equity for persons with disabilities, which still to the, I mean, we have obviously discussed, I mean, we're obviously um, uh, always working towards inclusion, but, and, and support of underrepresented folks, but still we're really far behind in terms of supporting people with disabilities in terms of the access they get, the post-secondary outcomes, inclusion. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. So there's a lot, So it's a good place to go out and do the work of problem solving. So I think that's important. And I also think that there's maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe there is some sense of empathy, right? We understand that many of us grew up in this place where the world didn't seem to be working for us. And I think a lot of students with disabilities, we always like to, uh, we don't like to, but people have this kind of deficit model of, oh, this person has such a disability instead of viewing that, you know, we just haven't figured out how to make the the world a better place for everyone, including persons with disabilities. So, you know, moving away from this. So I was taught early on through punk rock to not look at deficit models, but look at people's strengths and celebrate those things that might be a little weird, a little different. And so I think that's, you know, in alignment with what we hope we're doing in special education. So yeah, yeah, there's some connections for sure.
0: Yeah, and I, 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 one thing I forgot about one of the reasons why Duncan and I uh, kind of bonded back in the day is that we're both extremely dyslexic and um, both struggled with dyslexia. And I think one of the re- and one of the reasons why he and I bonded together on a lot of that is that we had very specific conversations early on about what we were having to deal with at school because of our learning disabilities. And I think specifically that interface with our own, my own disability kind of got me wanting to think, what's a job that I can do where I can help other people and who have it worse than I do or have more struggles or more, I shouldn't say worse, but have more struggles. And so that's, and I started the same path Um, I never actually became a teacher, but I start. I've always been a parent, but started with working in group homes and doing respite care and doing all that. And and I still, you know, kind of moonlight here and there doing that if I need to, you know, it was always exciting to me that to learn that there um, was a bunch of us who came from the hardcore scene that got into this field. I see people all the time, uh, you know, like Ryan Canavan, for example. Ryan, hanging like hex, who's is, is been doing this too. Like, uh, and I know Ryan from when I lived in Syracuse, and you know he's been doing this forever too. And he and I have had lots of conversations over the years about working in this field, and it was always cool to us to know that you, as somebody we looked up to as the singer of Endpoint, was 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 doing this. But it's a whole other step to get to the to get your PhD and and to teach special educators at the at the college level why did you decide to take that path so so first just a a quick course correction
1: uh i want to say that one well and you did probably didn't imply this but as you're talking about like well i didn't go do these things it's like people intersect no matter what position you hold people have a lot of power to improve lives for folks right and so you just do it differently ways. And so I've a lot of people that are certified teachers that are doing a very poor job, right? And then I see paraprofessionals that are just killing it out there and making the world a better place. And and same thing for me. It's like I'm I have a job, but I am day to day not working with people with disabilities anymore. Even though I pride myself on still getting out in classrooms, I do free consultations, I do uh studies in classrooms, like that's what I like to do because I don't want to lose touch. But um I think, that, so I decided to do it because the environment, this could sound very behavioral, but the environment kind of shaped me that way. So I started teaching. Um, I realized I didn't have the skills that I had. I started getting better, but then I was uh, in my, I'll do this very quickly. I was offered a position to pilot an inclusion program for kids with autism. So I left my classroom, but I did that. It was really hard because I was good with kids but not. But my job in this position was to change teachers' behavior, and so it was like, oh god, they just wanted me to come in, take the kid out. I was like, well, that's not what I'm here for, and it was just really a, a difficult situation because I was trying to please parents, make the have good outcomes, help you know, please the district and the teachers, and there was a I w- the position was actually developed kind of. Um, to eliminate lawsuits that were happening. So I was this young, upper 20 something like, all right. And then it's like, whoa, this stressful environment. So I went back to teaching uh, young kids. I moved to Colorado and that's where I moved in with Duncan. Duncan was in school there at the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and Christian Olson, his wife in a little house, fun times. Uh, and taught young kids again, because I knew, I knew a lot more. So it was kind of great to get all this training and working with adults and go back and have my own kids and work in that context for a bit. So then I came back to Kentucky, uh, went to a district position. And because I had developed some more skills, I feel like I was, my caseload was de- was increasing. Like one one time I had 78 kids that I was supposed to be keeping my eye on in a large district of 150,000 kids with all different teachers. And so basically I was starting to be rendered incompetent and I was nervous. I was like, I don't wanna not be good at my job, but basically my job now is to show up Check off a box and be like, "Okay, I got here, right?" Because you can't, right? You can't go three times in a, in a week to the same teacher to help change their behavior and coach them, and and so um, it was serendipity. I had this phone call from a professor at at, at uh, University of Kentucky I had some familiarity with me, um, and they were recruiting for a fellowship and asked if I wanted to apply. I went and did the whole. You know, I hadn't worn a tie in a while. I was all dressed up and did the rounds with all the professors, and I was selected for that fellowship along with a a small cohort of other people. So it was paid for through a a federal project uh, grant. Um, Yeah, and then I just loved it. I loved suddenly I'd I'd had enough experience realizing that I was, you know, just above mediocre probably because the things I didn't know. And so then I was like, oh, I can do this, or I can do this. And then you had access to do this, and then. Uh, when I started, got my first faculty job, I enjoy writing, I enjoy doing research, and I enjoy helping teachers, um, be effective, and, and I train behavior analysts, too, so I teach in both those programs, and so it's just really fun to pair people, to kind of instill in them things that I think is really important. You know, I tell teachers, I teach a, a communication methods course for kids that have minimal, you know, mm-hmm. we call complex communication needs, so I will say, um, you know, I say, I'll say i up front, I'm like if you have a kid in your classroom under your care that can't basically make simple requests or, or, or tell somebody to stop touching them, then we're failing. You're not worth your salt. Those, those strategies are not that hard to teach, but it means you're focused on something else. So anyway, I get to kind of distill some of those values, I think, uh, in the, the teachers that I work with. And so it's still reinforcing to me. Still, there's always new questions. I have wonderful colleagues. Um, I I work a lot more than I did even as a teacher, I think, because when you're in a research position faculty, you're just always going. To answer your question why I'm doing it now is because I really love it. And I also acknowledge I had a level of privilege to be able to have an access to a PhD program. Not everyone can do that. No one, not everyone actually finds their way into some grant funded project, um, but it's, it's exciting work. It really is. It's really, really fun. I get to travel. You know we don't get to tour as much so now i get to go to a conference somebody asks me to come speak and i'm like oh what vegan restaurants are there or, or where is it let's take a look we're you know? coming back to that because i uh, can't i can't yeah. not talk about vegan restaurants so it's, uh, so it's full of reinforcers and every now and then i get to connect with people yeah it's like i so you know black cross um First record was on equal vision and through that I met this wonderful guy Dan Sandshaw and then I was at the big ABA conference and I was like wait a minute that's that's Dan's wife so Jen Sh- uh, Sandshaw is a behavior analyst and like you're right I go to these conferences and I, I meet all these kids that what's scary is a lot of them are younger than I am now I'm like oh tattooed kids that are punk rockers or singing bands I'm like whoa check it out like it's really uh, Matt Tinkani Great guy, respect him. He was in academia before I was. I was reading his papers in my doctoral program. He played He played guitar for Edgewise. I mean, it's just like, it's full of crazy
0: people all the time. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> wow, I really, I didn't know that about Edgewise. Um, one of the most notorious uh, Louisville shows that I can ever remember was Judge, Integrity, Endpoint, and Edgewise, right? I've had that flyer on my wall for, <laughs> I had that flyer on my wall for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, well, yeah, and, and the thing about it is, is that in this field when you're a teacher or a para like on the ground, right? As I'm wearing a Star Trek shirt, I'm gonna make a Star Trek analogy. There's always, in Star Trek, there's always like when Kirk has to deal with the, the, the Admiral who comes in, he doesn't know what's going on. And a lot of times when we get experts or people from the district or whatever that come in it's it's really hard. So when somebody comes in who actually knows their stuff and can really add to it, you really love those experts. And, and And we make a point of when we have somebody come in that has really great feedback, to make sure to tell our BCBA like, hey, that person had great feedback. They were really awesome. We want them coming back. Because it's hard, because it's hard for you guys when you come into a classroom and you see one day or you see a couple hours, you read some data to, to try and figure out what it is. But I think you can always tell the people who have a natural feeling for teaching because they can look at the data. They can look at at what's going on in a classroom in one day and translate your experience and and, and know it. And you gotta when you get somebody like like that that comes in, it's it's really, really exciting because you can tell the ones that, like you said, that try to keep your foot in the classroom and try to do that you can really tell the difference. And I'm just saying that on my end as, as a, someone who's been a parent for 20 years, right? Anyways, that's a lot of, a lot of talk, but I really appreciate that, um, you know, it was really cool to me as somebody who grew up listening to Endpoint that, oh uh, man, Rob's a BCBA. That's, that's freaking awesome. You know, like he, he's in it. And so it's really funny to me because there have been a couple times over the years when I've had a particularly bad student where just in the back of my mind I thought to myself, you know what? I should send Rob an email. <laughs> just but I can't because it's like, you know, confidentiality, you can't do that, you know. And I'm like, yeah, maybe I won't use names, but it's just so cool to me that you're in this field, that you know this stuff, that you've worked with this stuff. And it's just something that I really, really, really appreciate. So one one other thing I want to talk to you about with the working with kids with disabilities is how do we, how do you think we, the people who are new to the field, like I have to train a lot of new paras that come in, that's part of my job. As somebody who's experienced staff, I've been at the school that I've been at for five years. And a lot of times we're hiring people that have very little experience or just a little experience, sometimes maybe they have family experience in their family. How do you explain the mission of working with people with disabilities? Like, how do you reach out to the people who are new?
1: Um, that's an extremely broad question. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I know. So, so one, I think, obviously, you want to you want to make sure technically that you train them for the for the skills that they will need to do a, pers- to a specific ta- job, right? So, it's going to be different from for people in all different positions you work with somebody in employment, you work with some a young kids with autism, you're really gonna make sure that you're catering what you're training to them to make sure that it's effective for that population. So sometimes we do this big, you know, omnibus training, you gotta have to have everything. And I just don't know if that's always realistic. I do think that it's really important to come, I think one of the most important elements is make sure things are person-centered and really, tackle the idea that you want to make that, that, that and I mentioned a little bit earlier, that we're not trying to, you know, work with this poor child with this disability. The idea is that we're here to help this individual or support this individual to access what everyone else has, right, and the opportunities that everyone has. And I think that's really important. I think that sometimes we You know, I I remember being a teacher, I have kids on the bus, we'd be traveling and, you know, somebody would always be like, God bless your heart for working with these kids, you know, and you're like, Oh, God, you know, they're like, thank you for you doing it, not me doing it. But the idea is that coming from this person centered place that these are, these are individuals that have the same rights as everyone else we just but they're not afforded to those because of some Unique qualities or skills that they have or don't have, and so our idea is to build a, a, a network of support so they have increased access. I also like that you know the um, you know for people to play the um, the the applicable card, like the youth. I don't know that's a, if that's a great word, but I like for I, I think another big core idea is that we are always targeting interventions that are doable. And will you be useful when we're not there? So again, a paraprofessional, um, I'll say to them, it's like, they don't need, you know, they don't need a friend. And it's, it's nice if you like them, that's great. But they basically need somebody that's gonna help them give them supports. Cause so, you know, we're not, we don't need to be on the cross, like, oh, we're the person that can help this individual. We need to put naturalistic as, as, as much as possible, teach them to a level of independent performance and provide kind of natural supports so that, um, They'll be able to, you know, survive. You know, be successful and happy the rest of their lives without us. So, you know, I, I'll see people that will do something, provide so many layers of support, and they're like, "Yes, we're moving the kid forward. Things are happening for him." But then you think about well, what if that person's gone? But so, really, bad, being really smart about you, and sometimes it is just common sense. We get lost in the weeds with technicality. We're looking at curriculum. This, you know, this has to be taught. And I ask people to sit back and be like, "Does it really?" You know, if you have, if you have, when somebody at a a young age, um, there's kind of this developmental bent, right? Where something doesn't happen and there, maybe there's the intellectual disability or the number of skills that you have to catch up that that have to be taught expand greatly. Cause you and I acquire most of what we know through watching others, learning rules, all these things and generalizing skills. Whereas a lot of our students don't, right? And so suddenly that curriculum is like this. So, you'll be really smart about like, what are you going to teach that's going to help this person basically access more reinforcers and, and avoid situations that are punishing and not pleasant for them? And that's really what should drive it. So, I mean, those are kind of big things. Of course, we could spend forever talking in the weeds about what are the most important skills to teach. But, um, you know, just recognizing the people you're working with are people and you're not there. There's a disconnect between. What they're able to do in the environment so your job is to fill that in by giving them more skills or adjusting that environment and then you're doing it within environments that they're actually going to live in i remember my first year teaching you know i was this i taught i was in an urban community with kids that mostly did not have a lot of financial resources you know I was, and and i was like yeah i'm going to take them on the trips and we'll go to like Indian food and we'll do all these crazy things I thought was cool from this like savior perspective to expose them to all these things and then I realized like what am I doing I mean I took them all camping I was trying to get the permissions in I hunted down this parent I was like why don't you want to go he's like brother Rob I gotta tell you something he said he said I he's he's like and and this is a broad stereotype and I don't know if there's any validity or not but he said he 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 was, he was he was he was a black man, and he said, "Black people don't like camping. What are you trying to do? Drag our kids out into the woods? That's why nobody's responding to you." I'm like, "Oh, you know." So I didn't ask. I didn't say, "What do you want your kids to know how to do?" I was like, "This will be great for them." Again, stupid right. to just out of school, like thinking I knew any anything when I knew nothing, and so again. Also, making sure that you listen to the families and your clients they don't want to do so they want to learn something that's their right there's a great paper about i forgot the exact um title of it but it was uh about the right to eat donuts and take a nap right famous aba paper and god i can't remember the author's not coming to my mind usually i'm pretty nerdy about that but uh bannerman bannerman that's it if you haven't read it Bannerman Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, the right, right to eat donuts and take a nap. It's, it's an amazing paper.
0: Well, it's my stepmother's influence on me in the field She she's a researcher at, or was, she's retired now from Indiana University School of Ed. And she used to, her main field was parent-teacher collaboration. So I'm the annoying one in all the meetings for at our school who's always like, well, this is what the this is what the parents are feeling or like. Have you thought about it from the parents' perspective? I'm always the one that's and we have one particular student in my class right now whose whose mother is a BCBA. Once we started doing zooms, like now she like only wants her son to work with me because like she figured out that I'm like king of parent, Parent uh, teacher collaboration, whatever. And um, I know she like read a paper of my stepmother's, but to me, it's so important to look and say, like, hey, you've got a shot here with these kids, and the parents are trusting you with the time. You have to try and think about what the parents want. I'm not saying you always agree with them, right? Because some parents are overwhelmed at home, and you have an opportunity, because you only have four to six hours a day, you can be stricter, and you can be, you can be tougher, you can be more in line in that time than they can 24 hours a day, and they're counting on you. They're counting on you to do more with the time that you have than they're able to do in 24 hours of the day. And so that is my philosophy all the time. I'm I'm well known for bringing this up in, in meetings with my, with this. because what educator would you ask and say, are our fam- our,
1: our family's viewpoints important? They'll say yes, but right. they just don't have time. They forget about it. They try to move through quickly. So they need a stimulus like you, a prompt to be like, wait a minute. Everybody needs you in their team meetings. Because again, we overlook it way too often. And again, it's not because of intent people you know the majority of things we do we don't con- you know consciously make some decision i'm going to do this we just leave parents out because we think it's more efficient and yeah. usually it results in less effective programming down the road
0: well and it's and you see it when how the teachers a lot of times the the teachers who are not so great how they prepare for ieps because they almost see it as like a, a match against the parents instead of looking at it as a collaboration. And I can tell as a para, five minutes into working in a classroom, if you have a conversation with any teacher about, because their, their, they're always planning for an upcoming IEP, right? <laughs> and so if you, if you, as a para, I come into a classroom and I ask a teacher like, oh, uh, whose IEP are you working on? And if they talk about for just a minute I can tell whether they're thinking about the parents or not I have had a lot of I've moved around a lot in the school that I work in with different teachers and um and if I feel like a teacher is not on the same page with me I'll find a way to get to another classroom you know that's just me but I don't like to waste my time either I like to really be able to affect my students too and I've never become a teacher for the specific reason that my writing career is something that I was hoping or hoping will still take off at some point. Because at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to, when I clock out as a para, to not have to think about it the rest of the day. And I know if I was the teacher, I would never stop thinking about it. So that's why I've never pursued that. However, I respect you guys. I respect you teachers a lot. I love when I find a good teacher to work with. So, that being said, do you have anything else on, on the ABA trade before we get into uh, traveling and um, and vegan restaurants and like put it out there to people that working in applied behavior analysis is awesome and doing, I only have my RBT and I do ABA after school with some of my kids and and I tell people all the time that there's a very specific thing once you train yourself to work in applied behavior analysis where uh, it affects how you, how you deal with your dogs. It affects how you deal with your your loved ones, and you you become you, you watch how the antecedents feed everything, and it's and it actually does change everything and how you see things.
1: I will say this because maybe your listeners don't. We've used a lot of jargon, right? Yes. Today, so. Just so you guys know, so applied behavior analysis is a science of human behavior, right? And it's been Okay. Yeah, I should
0: I should have said over,
1: over almost a century now. You know, we've been conducting studies in human behavior, and so it's probably one of the most what they we call evidence based approaches to addressing behavior. And so, and here's another thing. So we've talked about disability uh, and application to teaching, um, addressing problem behavior. Again, it's probably the most sought after, most effective practice well within its, its practices based on ABA is uh, probably the most effective in terms of helping students with problem behavior but I mean we see it everywhere right we see it in business we see it in, in the medical field I'm a part of a, a couple of organizations where behavior analysis is broad and what I love about it for me is behavior analysis because it's really about people it's about the effect of the environment so most people's skills that they have right are rooted in, I'm doing this for for your listeners, are rooted in their learning experiences. So from that perspective, there's no such thing as a broken person or a bad person. It's just a person that has a particular set of behaviors that their environment shaped for them, right? And so for me as a person, it makes me more, more forgiving. It makes me a better problem solver. It makes me understand why that guy flicked me off or that jerk down the street, you know, tried to bully me, I, you know, I feel more sorry Absolutely. than a dick. I'm like, man, that guy must have had a terrible set of learning, his, uh, terrible
0: learning history. Bummer, right? Yeah, so, and I wonder if you've had this experience, because as a hardcore kid specifically in this, I used to work at a, a different school in San Diego that we would have, a we dealt with a lot more of the aggression oh. and, and, and the violent episodes. Um, I'm proud to say that the school I work at now, we have very few aggressive episodes because I believe, because of the way our philosophy works, we don't do battles with kids like very specifically. But at this old school that I worked at, I, we used to have violent episodes all the time. And I was known for being insane, extremely calm while getting hit, punched, spit, beat on. And people would always say to me, like, they'd ask me, like, how I could stay so calm when things were getting. And I was like, do you know how many earth crisis mosh pits I have survived? Uh, How many times I've been hit in the face, like, by random things, had a stage diver kick me in the back of the head, Um, microphones swung in my face, like, because of punk rock, I think I can handle all those (laughs) moments and stay completely calm. And, and a lot of times i get recruited into these violent situations when they do happen because of how calm i can stay have you had the same experience you're nodding a lot so i think you have Definitely.
1: you know it's it, so there's two things one
0: kind of how you how quickly you get
1: over it i think it, you know it's based on your learning history like oh the kids are trying to get me whatever there is a certain level of uh what we call like respondent conditioning where you know if somebody throws a punch at you no matter how well you understand why it happens you you know you you react basically that's wired in us through evolution but people that have had lots of exposure to things like mosh pits like i said i did martial arts for so long no kid can hit me hard as i've been hit by my grandmasters and masters before so you know i'm a little bit more i don't nobody likes it but if a kid hits me it's not gonna i don't get angry i'm like oh okay you know Uh, and so it gives me opportunities since that um I don't get so aroused and escalate so quickly. It's easy for me to think, okay, what I need to do next. And I think the people that have that skill set or some of that experience are probably a little bit better in those those, uh, really
0: dangerous situations for sure. All right, so now the fun part, the food, because Rob, like one of the reasons why you're such a joy for me to follow on Facebook, especially when you're traveling is because you, I think do things exactly how I do when I travel which is the first thing I do is I look at Happy Cow and I see where I'm eating and I plan out my trip because I like eating at random new interesting places and as a longtime vegan, like um, just finding those kind of gems and because touring with bands and you did a lot more as a musician, I just uh, logged equipment for people. Uh, (laughs) But um, when you were touring, you found all these places like your soul veggies, your, you know, just places like that. What are your favorite, like off the top of your head, what cities are your favorite to eat in and what are your favorite places to eat? Oh, you're really thinking about this one. I can tell.
1: It's really overwhelming to even say that. So what I do, so one, I I still like to go back to New York and I'll tell you why. There's so many new restaurants, you know, it's like, since everything's moved to Brooklyn and other places, like there's just good food to eat. I still... Go back to those early endpoint experiences of you know back then it was like cardboard nature's burger or falafel and then like you know. <laughs> right. so now it's like I remember the first time going to House of Vegetarian and being like oh my god hot steak here so it recently closed down and I shed a little tear but oh, the around-
0: spare ribs there were amazing yeah. But they-
1: down the corner they they still have the vegetarian dim sum house which is owned by the same people and they have the same hot steak so hot steak brown rice and a coke is to me one of the most delicious things i've had it's not it's gross kind of it's like chewy and whatever but that and i and then i love going to so i'm I'm more of a creature of habit so i'll go to bots and get big giant new york bagel you know spoonful of foodie sun-dried tomato cream cheese and you eat it, it just like squirt on the side of your face i'm sitting there just looking at pigeons thinking about bf skinner eating my thing like it's just the best in the world so that off the table i like to go some pretty that the new people be like why do you eat there it's like because i remember
0: i talk. Well, you you here, come here you're probably gonna want to eat a pokies then okay uh, yeah you remember uh, pokies the- yes yeah but-
1: I, yeah, that was good. That nice flaky tortilla crust. Mm. Anyway, so like in, in, in a lot of speaking in Houston. And right, you know, maybe like five minutes from the speaking venue is an old school Govinda's. And it's like, I reminds me of the 80s, like Hare Krishna hardcore. So I'll go in there and they're almost all almost the whole buffet is vegan. I'm like, this is awesome. And yeah, it's okay. There's better Indian food. But like, it's just the smells, the whole like, memory of it. That being more recently there, I mean, there are, I mean, there's a million places to go. It's almost overwhelming. I love going up to Asheville, which is only now less than two hours from me. And they've got, um, plant, which is like ranked one of the top national vegan restaurants is really good. They have a great kind of, uh, Rosetta's kitchen, which is, you know, full of kind of like DIY punks running behind it. And they have amazing like greens and cornbread and And they have the best cheesecake, like i'm not a huge vegan cheesecake friend but the way they are are a fan but they have this delicious cheesecake that's just i don't explain how good it is um and also if you go to the little food court there you get to see bobby sullivan who works in the i think manages it there so there's all sorts of cool stuff about being near Asheville. there's a blue jim curry house which is really good um they make you know they have that uh hara spine, hara tempeh where they make their own tempeh in, in asheville like it's just a bunch of really so that's really cool i like going to um i like doing a little food truck circuit when i go to austin now mm. they have like this great barbecue revolution truck where it's just like old school like a piece of white bread barbecue brisket like all sorts of gross size that have no green color them all and you're just like this, this is still really good you know
0: yeah uh, Well, then there's just some places like um, legendary places that have closed that make me really sad. My friend had the last meal at the Globe in Seattle. Um, He literally ate the last meal before they closed. Um, He was sitting there when the guy said, that's it, we're done. They were supposed to be open for a couple more days. And he said, when you guys are done, we're locking up. And my friend Paul was like, I just had the last pancakes at the Globe. It's amazing.
1: (laughs) so for my midwest friends Louisville has always had some good spots but it is just now like yeah I've heard yeah grits. oh my god like so frigates one has like I like to drink beer with it so once in a while with dinner so it has their own little brewery and a part of the proceeds go towards animal rescue and then it has like this like beautiful vegan cuisine there's a, a I mean within a little block there are bakeries, restaurants, and then it's all over town. Like it is embarrassing. Like I was so sad when I left because all these places just opened. Was, yeah, you know, when
0: um when we left Portland, a bunch of new places opened up too. And uh like we're expanding and it's funny because I'll talk to some of my friends back in Portland about places that I miss eating at and they'll be like, oh we don't even eat there anymore. It's it's like, (laughs) they're like, where's, we've got this, 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 and this. And I'm just like, what? Um, it's amazing. Bloomington too has, um, has a vegan bakery. Like that's literally across the street from the last like big straight edge house that we all lived in. And, um, (laughs) and we were like, man, if that bakery existed, when we, (laughs) when we lived in that house, it would have been terrible. But, uh, oh, I know. But, um, (laughs) yeah, in San Diego, we got a lot for you now, too, so next time you have a conference here, I'll make sure you, uh, you, you find every place, because
1: we I had never been to Portland, and so it's really funny, all my bands, like, from Black God, Black Cross, all the bands before, that, and we, I've never, I've never been to Oregon, so we went there for a conference last year, right before COVID broke out, and I mean, that place was ridiculous. Like every block of vegan restaurant went to Vtopia, that cheese place. So it was amazing. Like, went to a little d- dim sum place or a little noodle place or a dumpling shop in the back of that. Like, we were just like, it was, re- I mean, it was, it was insane. And this is strange too. So I've never, I've, I've always loved like a, a, one of my, you know, if you think about kind of top five, top 10 bands, like I love drive like Jehu, Hot Snakes, all the iterations, I'd never seen the Hot Snakes. So we're in this conference and I um, see an old friend of mine and I'm like, wait a minute. And he's like, oh, I was like, what are you doing tonight? We we're eating. He's like, oh, I'm going to see Hot Snakes at some random motor- indie motorcycle show. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was the best week of my life. It's like I just kept eating, eating, and then suddenly randomly hot snakes is playing i'm like, gonna go see hot snakes it was like a you know some biker show so it was like maybe only like 150 200 people in this room so you're right up front like it was just like the best week ever and i'm probably- like
0: <laughs> you get to eat a homegrown smoker while you were there the vegan barbecue yeah
1: i, I will say it's a special treat when i'm out of town you know i'm like i'm less and less interested in kind of like barbecue kind of fake meats as much like i love a good like uh bar or like super awesome southern indian food or like i like going trying to figure out such seven such restricted towns but like going to a different cuisine that i haven't had that has great vegan stuff but yeah it's, it's good every now and then you always just feel like you can't poop for a week you're like oh after you eat it you're like i'm gonna ah oh. those delicious
0: we have vegan indian we have in san diego we have a new we have two we have a vegan sushi place uh um we have uh recently a a, a fancy pants japanese vegan japanese wow. uh we have a cafe gratitude really? we have um two native foods we have we're, we're doing all right here
1: but the um where was so my so ryan patterson mm-hmm. went to a restaurant there i believe and they had like a cat magic punks kind of like one-off thing there and like the whole menu was themed but he said it was like amazing
0: it was kindred kindred that's what i was gonna get to yeah, yeah their their brunch is amazing the pancakes are insane um that's my that's my birthday spot um yeah they had uh and they always play like stoner metal like all day long on a loop While when you're there it's great um just, you eat more slowly you're like duh, duh, duh. <laughs> yeah exactly um Yeah, we were in there one time they were playing Danzig and I was like, I think you're pushing it there, but I appreciate the Danzig but um, they're great and they have like a a black metal uh, a big picture of the guy from immortal with the cat in one of the bathrooms. Uh, That place is fantastic, Um, but we also have here our favorite place in San Diego is we have a veganic we have an all vegan Thai place and once you have an amazing gourmet entirely vegan Thai place, you feel like you'll never be the same again. <laughs> again cause um, yeah. we used to live very close to it. And like anytime we want to carry out, it was always veganic to the point where when I would dial them, they would say, hello, David. And I felt very weird about that. But at the same time I was like, I don't care cause I'm eating veganic all the time. And, uh, they have cream cheese wontons that um, I'm I'm promising you if you ever come here for a conference. That's like
1: 1980s stuff. Like I haven't had a cream cheese wonton since you know I was 12 years old with my parents eating at the Oriental House in Kentucky. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, Veganic is is to me it's my favorite place in San Diego. But we're we're pretty lucky because it's funny when we left San, we lived in San Diego, went to Portland, came back. And um, the amount of vegan stuff that increased like while we were gone, wasn't that much. But since we've been back, we've just been watching it grow. And uh, we even have, uh, what's cool is uh, one of the um, non-public schools for kids with disabilities in town is a place called Stein. And there's a random uh, convenience store around the corner from Stein that the guy who ran the convenience store became vegan and then turned it into like he has a sandwich shop in the back and he runs this convenience store as a vegan convenience store and it was funny because every time we get staff over from stein that moved to our school whenever i say i'm vegan they, they always ask me like oh have you been to this store it's great and i realize how many people who are just people in the neighborhood eat at that place because it's you know, it's delicious and awesome. And uh, but it's totally the other side of San Diego and I get everywhere on bikes, so I've only been there like twice. But I hear it's great. Um and uh yeah, they just got uh lots of really good stuff going on. So Rob, this was awesome. Uh I had a lot of fun reminiscing about the old days and getting into some restaurants, but um are you are you still doing Black Cross when you can get back to Louisville? Are you still doing Music or, or uh, do you? I know you by the grace of God is is off and on doing stuff, right? Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know if you know. So, after, so Black Cross
1: ended about ten years before, and well, then Black God was the this, the the last iteration of that. So oh, we,
0: okay. I, I yeah, I did not know that. I thought Black Cross was on on a um,
1: little seven inch thing. So, so that's kind of done um and then i duncan and i uh, you know we put out a record right before i moved here and then uh we you know we talk about writing more songs so we just like being together all of us uh tommy and tree and um all those folks it's just it's just a wonderful group of guys but i just started a band here called jupiter hearts and we haven't recorded anything yet we've got about eight or nine songs and uh, it's funny my department chair plays guitar and used to book shows and like uh kalamazoo in the late 80s and so he was kind of playing in a cover band and i was like you ever listen listen to punk or something like he's like oh yeah and i was like wait a minute so he had this great (laughs) writing songs and i was like i don't know because he's played covers but he's incredible and he writes these awesome songs with great um I, i don't know it's really fun and then there was a guy that that uh saw Endpoint in Europe in 92 and by the grace of God, 97. And he lives here and he's like, oh yeah, it's still heavy German accent. he's, and he's like, I play a bass. And so he joined us. And then there's a wonderful record store here called uh, Lunchbox. And the owner of that place, drums, Scott Wishart. So he's playing. So we just started playing and awesome. it's been yeah. really fun. So I, I don't know if anything will come out of it, but at least I get to keep doing something that I really enjoy. And it gives me a little balance between the, the other work things
0: yeah well and i love some of the the projects that some like um like carl from ec has a punk band that he's doing apocalypse tribe and i love that he's doing a punk band that he's never done a straight punk band before and i just think it's so cool but um and, and some of the fun things that are going on with that i think that's really neat that you're uh doing new music and i really look forward to hearing it um rob it was awesome talking to you about these things i think people will really enjoy catching up with. Um, with you, and what you're, what you're doing and hearing, I know not everybody, some people are going to tune in for the educational stuff and some people are going to tune in for the hardcore stuff for the people that listen to all of it. Uh, I really appreciate your time. This has been really fun for me. Endpoint, like I said, just um, in a lot of ways, the soundtrack of um, my high school years, because, um, you know, I went to boarding school, which was, it's kind of weird outside of, in Carbondale. And so for me to travel to get to all the shows that I did was a huge, huge hardship for me. And I always um, appreciated like just the emotional outpouring of Endpoint was something that um, is just a huge part of my childhood. And I know that sounds kind of goofy and weird to say, my young adulthood but um, I just really appreciate that. I also appreciate that you and Duncan are out there um, as educators um, is, is a really neat thing for me. And I'm really excited for more by the grace of God too. So I'm going to put put it out there. I want you to do more. Yeah. So, well, so I'm going to reciprocate by saying one, when
1: I think of all these towns that I've, that I've visited in those days, right? Those days, as you said, they were emotional, they were so, seminal to or, or foundational almost for who I was who I who I've become but there are faces associated with all of these towns during that time and you're one of those faces and I'm all and I'm so I'm not surprised that you're a writer you've you know you keep pumping out these books like you there are some all the people that that seem to be those kind of like oh the person the people that I know that we're working so hard and so engaged in our time. They're all doing great things.
0: I mean, Yeah, it's awesome. Like,
1: the I, majority yeah. of them, are like crazy stuff. You're like, oh my God, of course you're doing this. You know, like I've just, you know, I'm in the government. I've just made this change to increase. Yes, of course you did. You know, I, I'm running this this company to do this. I'm doing this type of work with this population. And, you're, and I'm just never surprised because I'm like, because that community, again, I know I'm being idealistic and overgeneralize. We're just so full of so many hardworking and talented and kind people. So it's been a pleasure for me to catch up with you and just um and and I hope we do it again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I agree. And I hope you can make it out here to San Diego for a conference and then we'll we'll do it over veganic or something. I have high expectations now. When I'm coming there, you're gonna be like, oh God, Rob's calling. I'm like, no, where are we going? So. yeah where are we going we'll we'll, we'll we'll do well but uh i know what you're saying though too because i had the experience of kind of experiencing living in two hardcore scenes because i went to i went to school in syracuse and did that whole thing and especially specifically in syracuse so many of those kids have awesome businesses now from syracuse like specifically that town and then you have like shane Durge who's running an art gallery and like it, it just the fucking, the cool stuff that the kids from Syracuse, did. Lori, who runs, who's like a master of yoga and like, you know, from that hardcore scene, it's just incredible just to see people c- come out of that. So I have the weird thing where I have all my Indiana friends where I feel like they did cool stuff, like Ian Phillips running three carrots and, you know, for oh, example. My, restaurant,
1: hold on. That's a good one. That's a great one. So yeah. Just quick advertising, you know, because I, I, again, Indianapolis, you go there and you're like, eh, the food's okay. Never excited about going to eat and going to Indy to eat, but now with three carrots, delicious.
0: Yeah. I was roommates with Ian for a while. So um, I had him, I was like in his kitchen with him cooking for for years. So I I have a strong place in my heart. And so you can always look at three carrots too and say, X birthright, X horizon you know, um, X rise over run. And, uh, it's really like one of those cool things, but yeah, see, we're going to, uh, we could go on forever. Anyways, Rob, it was really awesome talking to you and catching up with you. Um, I it's just, it's really cool to see what you're doing. So I hope listeners I'll, uh, I'll put, uh, I'll put an endpoint song at the end of this bad boy so, uh, they can, uh, hear a little bit of it. Um, uh, cause, uh, I, and, but definitely go and check out the YouTube videos of old endpoint live shows to get a feel for, for what we're talking about. Um, it, it's just, uh, it was a phenomenal time and place. So um, yep. thank you, Rob. Take it easy.